Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. So today we're so privileged to have on a, on the podcast, Dr. Mickey Parrish with the FDA. Uh, welcome, Mickey. Thanks for joining. Well, thanks very much, Peter. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to your questions. Oh, thank you. So one of the first questions right off the bat, I really want to know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners want to know, is what is your typical day life? A uh, typical day here is, uh, well, there is no typical day, Peter. That's uh, part of the issue. Uh, things change so rapidly around here that we have a lot of different issues popping up every day. Uh, but but generally speaking, I get here, you know, in the range of 730 in the morning, uh, go over the emails from the night, uh, look at my schedule, prep for meetings, um, uh, that sort of thing, and and usually I'm out of here. Hopefully, with any luck, about five or so, and um, that's that's a typical day. But as it is with many jobs, you uh, often take your job home with you. So weekends and nights, uh, there are times when we do I do a lot of reviewing of documents and things of that nature that are part of the job. Mm-hmm. So are you traveling a lot for FDA? Is it, I know you do some workshops and you do some... some yeah. um, I, I, I have traveled quite a bit the last few years. I've cut down um, significantly uh, this year, so there's less travel, but I have traveled quite a bit, yeah. So it, mm-hmm. it's a matter of reaching out, going out uh, to industry, to industry groups, and our partners in uh, at our uh, centers of excellence that we support and meet with them on a variety of topics. Uh, to a large extent, it's listeria because uh, I'm one of the points of contact for uh, issues related to listeria monocytogeny. So we, I do a lot of traveling for that. But uh, luckily, this month, um, I only have one trip. So... So I get to stay home for a while. That's good. Get caught up on some desk work, I'm sure. Yeah. So you were formerly a food microbiologist, researcher, and professor at the University of Florida for quite some time. Um, How has that experience influenced or informed your decision-making in policy development with FDA? Oh, okay. Good question. I started working at the University of Florida a very long time ago. I spent about roughly uh, not quite 20 years on the faculty at the University of Florida at the Citrus Research and Education Center. And during that time, I saw a lot of uh, issues develop related to how industry um, handles uh, some of the problems that they face it sometimes. And one of those problems was the salmonellosis outbreak of 1995, uh, where we had salmonellosis uh, cases that were tracked back to the producer of fresh squeezed, non pasteurized raw orange juice. And uh, as a part of that, it was my role as a faculty member at the university to uh, become involved, to find out uh, what the evidence showed, what did the science say, and to become involved and try to find a solution. So during that time, it became quite uh, evident to me that um, there was a need to make some decisions from a policy perspective by the state of Florida uh, without having scientific certainty. In other words, we didn't know necessarily exactly 
how to get rid of the salmonella from orange juice, and we weren't exactly sure how it got in there, although we had some pretty good ideas. But we had to make some decisions on, well, you know, what does that segment of the industry need to do to uh, continue to do business in the state of Florida? So it, it, it was interesting because ultimately uh, we did make some decisions. I was on a, a sort of a blue ribbon panel for the, the Department of Citrus, which is a separate state agency in Florida. And they made some decisions, and, and I became impressed with the fact that that had to be done without having necessarily all of the science uh, needed to make an absolute decision. And that's part of what I've learned here as well is that um, we don't always have absolute certainty from a scientific perspective. But we may have enough science involved that will help us uh, uh, give us a direction on how to move forward on policy issues. And uh, that's been a, a big lesson to learn over the years. Hmm. So that's really um, how being a professor uh, ha has helped me. It put me in the position to see how science and the lack of science uh, impacts making decisions from a policy perspective. So do you uh, interact with uh, risk assessors there at FDA on a routine basis or oh, sure. projects? Yeah, yeah we, we have a, a group of really great risk assessors here at SIFSAN uh, where I work, the mm -hmm. Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. They uh, are uh, constantly involved in looking at a variety of risk assessments and risk characterizations that have to be done for oh, different issues. And we've published, as you know, we've published many risk assessments over the years, uh, many of them in cooperation with other uh, agencies like the 2003 Listeria guidance or Listeria risk assessment that uh, uh, we published along with FSIS at USDA. Uh, we've also published uh, uh, risk assessments with Health Canada and with uh, other uh, agencies as well. So we do quite a bit of that in risk assessment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an interesting point you bring up about the juice outbreaks in the 90s and, and your work there and how I guess that led to the requirement for pasteurization of juice or or a five log reduction. Was the five log reduction one of those one of those performance standards that was based on um, not a full complete data set, but you 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 used some what knowledge you had to come up with what would be a good appropriate level of protection? Well, I was not involved in the decision on on what const whether or not a five log reduction is appropriate uh, for juices or for, well, excuse me for for anything. Now, uh, I was not at FDA when the juice HACCP rule was uh, written and and published. Um, I think that the experience we had with orange juice and the you know the following year was the uh, apple juice estec uh, outbreak in california uh, i think those things sort of pushed fda toward uh, trying to come up with a regulation that would help make juices safer so um and that's when the five log reduction for juices became of the pertinent pathogen became um, um, part of our knowledge. Um, in that, you know, having said that, as I said, I wasn't here at the time. Uh, I do believe, generally speaking, that a five log reduction, as a rule of thumb, is quite helpful. And for most things in general that should pr provide uh, a level of protection that should protect public health. And uh, 
Now, that's not necessarily the case in everything, and it may be that sometimes you want a higher level of protection. There may be even some cases where uh, perhaps a four log would be uh, an appropriate level. So it, it probably varies from commodity to commodity. Sure, and there are several commodities out there that would love to have some reduction, yeah. any reduction. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, I would point to the almond industry is doing a really, really good job of gathering a lot of data, doing their own risk assessments, uh, bringing that to us and to try to justify a four-log reduction as being appropriate, and and they were able to do that. We we agreed with them that four log uh, seemed to work quite well. And now with the, uh, I think it's the almond marketing order, uh, all almonds consumed in North America have received a four log reduction, usually due to I think due to um, the use of a fumigant like propylene oxide, but potentially also from the use of uh, roasting. How are things going with, with SISMA? Oh, I think things are going pretty well right now. You know, this has been a long process for FDA uh, with the law becoming, uh, or it becoming law in 2011. It took us... Uh, a few years to finally publish some draft rules, and those draft rules were then finalized, and they are now coming into compliance. And most of the compliance dates have, I think they've all passed at this point. Um, so we've had some fa different phases of FISMA, I would call them. Phase one being that time where we were writing the rules and regulations publishing them as drafts, reading comments, then coming out with the final regulations. Then there's the implementation phase where we have to now implement the rules, and we're, we're well into that uh, phase. And we're coming into now the, what I would call the, sort of the activities phase, the third phase where we are um, um, now engaged in conducting inspections and enforcing the regulations uh, the way they were intended to be enforced. So it's been sort of ups and downs, as you might expect with any new venture. You, some things go well, others need to be improved. I would say we have worked very hard at having a really good outreach to industry. We've listened very closely to industry's concerns about specific issues, and uh, we we have made changes uh, to to how we do things. Uh, we involve our state and local partners, especially with, as you know, with the produce rule and the fact that um, you know this is something new to have FDA on the farm, uh, something that farmers are not quite used to. So uh, we've been very sensitive to that. We've worked really hard with them. But overall, I think that we've done a pretty good job. A matter of fact, uh, today as an, uh, we, we had a meeting with an industry group um, that represents a certain segment of the food industry. And uh, to paraphrase, I can't remember the exact words, but the, it was something like, they said something like, FISMA is what we needed to produce a safer product. Mm -hmm. So they recognize that uh, emphasis on prevention of um, contamination of food is better than uh, an emphasis on uh, re <laughs> you know FDA's the old way of reacting to mm -hmm. uh, problems when they pop up. So I think overall FISMA has gone pretty well, and uh, we're it's still a work in progress, and we may still make mistakes, and we depend on you and your listeners to let us know when we do that so because we want it to be uh, a functional system that will uh, enhance public health while at the same time allowing uh, American consumers to have a, a safe and varied food supply. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I would agree with your assessment. And from my perspective as an industry scientist and consultant, I would say I would give very high marks to how it's been implemented, the the basis of everything, and how how there has been a a really good structure and and format in which to provide feedback to the agency. So that's just really a success story, and I think that's your your industry trade association contact or meeting with that person stated it is it is a good a good way that industries latched on to the concepts and reduced risk to the consumer. Well, thank you, Peter. I appreciate that feedback. And you know, if anyone does have questions about FISMA, we do have the uh, technical advisory network, the TAN. Uh, they can go to uh, fda.gov slash FISMA, and I believe near the bottom of that page is a link to submit a question. And uh, if you have any questions about the rules it's themselves, and, and uh, then uh, feel free to make use of that. Uh, we may not get back to you right away. It may take a little time, but you should receive a response. Definitely. So, and speaking of impact, you you've had quite an impact in working on reducing the the risk and the outbreaks attributable to Listeria monocytogenes, and you were part of the FDA draft guidance for industry on control of Listeria monocytogenes, published in 2017. Um, what were the changes that were made from the old draft guidance from 2008? And how has, in your perspective, how has industry responded? Well, that's a really good question, uh, Peter. I, I would say that industry has responded pretty well to the new draft guidance of 2017. But it's been, uh, as you know, the old guidance document was published in 2008. In that year, there were two Listeria monocytogenes documents published. One was what we call the Guidance for Industry, and that's what was recently published in January of 2017. And then the other document was the Compliance Policy Guide, which is essentially a guidance document to our FDA field staff on um, um, how to react to, uh, you know, a food sample that tests positive for Listeria monocytogenes. So so those two documents were published as drafts in 2008, but they were never finalized. So, so those, the parts of those uh, documents were never really implemented. Uh, and many people find that a little hard to believe, but we did not implement the, the uh, parts of uh, the documents that um, uh, some that that have created a lot of interest in industry. So there's been information that we've have developed and become aware of over the years. Uh, we had a a food advisory committee meeting. I think it was in 2015, uh, specifically on Listeria monocytogenes, asking for guidance from that uh, committee, which has both uh, had both industry uh, and and other government agencies uh, members on that. Um, you re- may recall that the 2008 document compliance policy guide referred to um, uh, established a dual standard, one that said the presence of Listeria monocytogenes in a ready-to-eat food that supported the growth of the organism would render that that uh, product to be adulterated under uh, 402A1. And the um, other would be that if, if it's a ready-to-eat food that did not support the growth of Listeria monocytogenes, that 100 uh, cells per gram or mill of food would be acceptable uh, or would would be tolerated. And as I said, that was never implemented 
um, by FDA and over the years with some of the new data that we've seen and some of the issues that have popped up. Uh, for example, the, the ice cream outbreak of a few years ago. We And we expressed publicly in 2015 that we questioned whether that 100 per gram criterion would be appropriate for the public health related to highly vulnerable individuals. That is, these are people who have reduced immune function, maybe from a medical condition, or maybe a uh, maybe it's a pregnant woman, or maybe an elderly person, someone who is, has gotten older. Um, such, and we we just were questioning whether their health would be protected with that particular criterion. So um, that was in the CPG of 2008. We have a new draft CPG that we'll, we hope to be publishing uh, fairly soon that will um, uh, clarify our views on this. And uh, uh, as with any draft document, you know how things go around here. Um, it will be subject to public comment. Uh, we will then take those public comments, review them, and come out with a final guidance document at a future time. And I will say we do take the public comments very seriously, and oftentimes the public comments do cause us to go back to the draft document and to make changes. So it is possible that, uh, you know, changes will be made. document that we published in, in January of 2017 is the new draft guidance for industry. That document we have not finalized yet. We've received comments, and we are looking at how to make changes that will improve the document in, in a way that uh, will have a positive impact on public health while at the same time uh, maintaining a varied and uh, nutritious and safe food supply for the American consumer. Now, the, the guidance that is related to the um, CPG the Compliance Policy Guide, that draft guidance document is currently in clearance here at FDA, and we hope to have that new draft published. Uh, frankly, I had hoped it would be published by now, but we hope to have it published in the not-too-distant future. Okay. So we'll be looking for that with bated breath because that's CPG as often – I mean, I, I think you direct that to your – inspection is that correct yeah the CPG is directed to our field staff on how staff. to react whenever they find samples that are positive for uh, L monocytogen right right okay but it definitely has an impact on how industry chooses to approach compliance because they they correct. see that and kind of the same scenario works its way through uh, USDA, FSIS, the way they put out their um, directives to their field staff. Yes, exactly. And we know that industry is very interested in the compliance policy guides that we publish. So uh, we make sure, we try to make sure that the compliance policy guides, again, uh, have a positive impact on public health while at the same time assuring that we have a, a varied, safe, nutritious food supply for the American consumer. Yes, absolutely. So uh, that's great. So we'll be looking for that in industry, and I'm sure um, consumers as well, consumer groups are eager to see FDA's um, guidance on that, on the three monocytogenes. Okay. I think it's been, sure. um, it's been great that um, I think you've had a part in going around and educating Industry, at least on um, on some of the science, as much as you're you're able to speak to that um, and your expertise there, but also on the agency's approach to it. So, been really helpful. Well, let, I think. Let, go ahead. 
Peter, let me point out also that uh, my my uh, good colleague Jenny Scott and I are are the uh, Listeria point of contact for technical questions, and we've had great input into a, a small team of people who have been writing these guidance documents. And it has been very interesting. Uh, one of the probably one of the highlights of my career here is getting these documents written and published and out the door. So um, I've been very pleased with that. And Jenny has done a just a masterful, tremendous job at uh, working with industry and, and making sure, again, that we have a safe, wholesome food supply uh, while ensuring that there is a, a food supply that enough of a food supply for people to to have choices, uh, we're not in the business of trying to put firms out of business. We want, if a firm has some problems or issues, we want to be able to work with the firm to help them come back into compliance. I think it's amazing that you're working on this. You have been for the past several years at a time when whole genome sequencing, the technology there has been really implemented, and now FDA is a leader in using that as a tool to gain insights into uh, smaller outbreaks. Can you describe some about that uh, whole genome sequencing at FDA and how it's impacted oh, what sure. you're doing? Yeah. Uh, you know, we were interested many years ago in trying to refine the pulse field gel electrophoresis tool. Uh, you may, I, I know you're aware of that. Again, that's a, a laboratory method that takes the genetic component of an organism and chops it up and runs it on a gel such that you have a banding pattern. Uh, and many organisms that are the, the same should give the same banding pattern every time you run that test. Uh, and, then, and you can use different restriction enzymes on the same DNA to get different banding patterns. And with that, you can begin sort of categorizing organisms based on their banding pattern. Uh, we wanted to refine that tool to have something that was uh, more exact, and that led us to, into whole genome sequencing. It was sort of based on all of the information generated during the Human Genome Project. You remember that many years ago now. Um, I, uh, that was conducted where the human genome was sequenced. And we knew that we could sequence DNA uh, with uh, really great accuracy. And based on that, we started investigating sequencing whole genomes of bacteria. And that has led to whole genome sequencing as a tool that we now use to replace pulse field gel electrophoresis. It's much more precise. It helps us ensure that if we're comparing two organisms, maybe one is from a food and one is from a patient, that we have um, some pretty darn good certainty at the end that if they are close to being the same sequence, that they uh, that there's a relationship there between um, the 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 two strains. Now we don't know exactly what that relation is, and we're very careful not to make an automatic assumption that the presence of the organism in a food and the, uh, the an illness uh, that occurs, if those two strange organisms are really close, um, indicating they're likely of the, a similar origin, uh, we also need to have still have the epidemiology evidence from the individual that says that they ate that food. Uh, in other words, there are some situations where whole genome sequencing um, can point us in a direction that where the food may have added a, an, an ingredient um, that had the organism in it and the patient who became ill 
may have consumed that same ingredient perhaps in a different food. Uh, so that firm itself may not be the ultimate source of the organism. So you can see we have to be really careful how we interpret whole genome sequencing evidence. Um, but it has been a, a huge, uh, huge uh, impact on, on us. And if you talk to your colleagues down at CDC, I think they would uh, agree that whole genome sequencing has become the standard for use in um, outbreak investigations. Yes, and so it's really illuminated for you a lot of a lot of routes of contamination and and, and illness. And yes, uh, we had you know industry was concerned when we first started using whole genome sequencing because they didn't quite understand it. And we 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 still have. Um, a, a lot of outreach to industry about whole genome sequencing just to make sure. And I think the vast majority of people now are aware of the scientific, um, um, the, the very strenuous and rigorous scientific uh, uh, path that we've taken to ensure that, that we are doing this in a correct manner uh, and that uh, we do have uh, good evidence that there are matches between two different strains or three different strains. It's evidence that they have some sort of uh, similar source in their uh, immediate history that would cause us to want to investigate that. Yeah. Again, we're, we're being really careful not to automatically assume that there's a direct relationship between a food and an illness. It just means we need to go to a firm maybe that's producing that food that has this strain of pathogen in it and conduct an investigation to see if there is some sort of relationship there. Such as swabbing, taking product samples, yeah. taking environmental samples. Yes, we, we do that. And uh, I know I've heard lots of um, comments from my, my industry colleagues on swabathons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And things of that nature, but we like uh, to, we like to give these things funny names, don't we? I know, I know, <laughs> and that's fine. You know, we we understand. Uh, we have to go in and do an investigation. I can tell you that we've done this. Uh, even recently, we had a situation where the epidemiology was pointing toward a particular commodity. And uh, once we went into a couple of the firms that had been impl implicated by epidemiology, and we did a lot of swabbing, we did we looked around. You know how we can be pretty thorough. We could not find any evidence, and it turns out that the epi, after reanalysis, sort of pointed in a different direction at a different food uh, uh, being involved. So, um, and, and having the whole genome sequencing really helped to make that decision. Right, sure. It's a, it's a big part of the puzzle, but it is not the whole puzzle. You have still have exactly. To yeah, yeah. it's a tool. It's mm -hmm. simply a more refined tool to use in our toolbox of how to investigate um, recalls and outbreaks. Yeah, excellent. So I wanted to ask you also if you if you have the liberty to speak to where you think there might be some gaps in our food production system globally, um, where where we need more research or where there are just too much too many risks. I mean, you could you could easily use the sprouts example if you'd like, uh, because FDA has made a, made a statement there about advisory against consumption of raw bean sprouts or seed sprouts, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, well, I'm I'm not probably not going to talk about sprouts uh, specifically. I, I will say that um, uh, it's very difficult to produce sprouts that are 100% safe 100% of the time. Uh, uh, but I do know the industry is trying very hard to make strides toward that goal. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, I would say that there are some things like uh, we, we are concerned about raw seafood, eating raw seafood. Uh, we are concerned about uh, uh, 
sometimes with uh, how, how what's the best way to protect produce from contamination mm-hmm. in the field and and in the handling portion of uh, both whole produce as well as fresh cut produce. Uh, those are are questions that we have to address. Um, how do we get some of these smaller processors to understand the significance of environmental monitoring and how important that is in controlling Listeria monocytogenes. Um, all of those, I think, are really are really ripe for additional uh, research. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm really following, trying to follow closely, is metagenomics, and what, how, where is that going to take us in the future? I mean. Uh, will it lead to a greater understanding of the pathogenicity of organisms? Um, um, uh, you know, with with a movement toward culture-independent testing in the medical field, how is that going to impact our ability to do um, uh, investigations when there is an outbreak? Uh, if you don't have the actual organism itself from a patient that you can look specifically at the gen- the genomics of that particular strain, then how is that going to impact our ability to do um, investigations in outbreaks on, on looking at different foods? So metagenomics, I think, may provide uh, some help in that direction if there are um, changes in the metagenomic profile of a particular facility, um, if they were to do swabbing, in other words, at, on different surfaces, and the firm notices that the metagenomic profile has changed, even though they may not have determined that there is, say, listeria in their in, uh, environment. Uh, how how can that impact uh, the the ultimate safety and the risk associated with the food? There are just so many things like that that are ripe for investigation. And as new technologies move us forward, uh, we have to be ready to uh, consider how we're going to um, how that's going to impact regulations and our ability to uh, regulate the industry. I think what you said made, it just made me think about how an early warning system in environmental monitoring would be so powerful and how metagenomics could provide that potentially. So Absolutely, often you, yes. So often you see these um, assumptions made that a negative environmental sample proves absence but in fact, it does not. It does not, yes. And that's why we need good consultants like you out there, <laughs> making sure that, that uh, people understand that. And, you know, you, you, and I, you and I know that the big, really large companies that have lots of resources, they, they pretty much get it. They, mm-hmm. they are, they're not um, – almost sometimes we have a little – Disagreement or concerned with maybe one or two from now now and then, but in general not. In general, they do a pretty good darn good job of ensuring the food supply is safe. Uh, at the same time, some of the really small companies though, maybe not fully appreciate um, what they have to do to ensure their food is safe for consumption, and that's where we need to get. Uh, we, we need people like you out there working with them to help them un- understand that it's actually quite complicated. Well, that's, that's a great, great point. I think um, there, is, there is definitely more awareness of the smaller and very small producers, processors, growers, harvesters, and I think it's increasing. I think FISMA had a lot to do with it, Listeria. Guidance and listeria, um, you know, compliance policy guides. Those have all had a had a part in increasing that awareness. 
So now it's just that process of incrementally increasing that knowledge on the small and very small parts of the industry and then driving home that point, holding them accountable so that they they do the right thing when there's not an implant inspector every day like there is in meat and poultry. So Right. Yeah. And I would say if any time that a small or very small processor has questions about uh, compliance and the regulation, um, while I know that, that many of them do have really good trade organizations that they can consult with, uh, the local FDA offices out in the field are always willing to answer questions uh, uh, and try to provide assistance when they can uh, when when those types of questions related to um, you know the regulations come up and uh, I know that there's not a great appetite among most firms to actually pick up the phone and call FDA but understand that the people there uh, really are happy to 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 work with a firm to get answers to questions. So, uh, in those maybe those instances, there may be few, but when they do occur, where you think you need a question answered by FDA, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call the local offices and uh, ask ask them. There there are a lot of really good people. And they'd be happy to help. That's great to hear. So I know we only have a few minutes left, but I did want to ask you a little bit about how you got into this field, if you'd like to share some of your history and uh, how you landed in food microbiology and food safety. Oh, okay, sure. Um, Well, I, um, I have a bachelor's degree in biology. And when I got out of uh, from Florida State, and when I got out of school, I found that I couldn't really find a uh, a job necessarily in the field. Uh, however, after a few years of floating around from from dead end job to dead end job, I in, ended up at working at the University of Florida's Citrus Research and Education Center as a lab technician. And that's where I met um, some food scientists, and they convinced me to go back to graduate school in food science. And uh, I've probably is the best decision I've one of the best decisions I've ever made professionally. Uh, so it's worked out really well for me. I'm very appreciative to them. Um, it's been great uh, being able to. To work in this field, but uh, you know, as you know, it's food science typically is taught at land grant universities, and for the vast majority of students who begin uh, working in any college of agriculture, they probably don't have any idea what food science is. So we've suffered from this lack of 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 um, awareness for many decades. And it continues, frankly, uh, even to this day. And I would hazard a guess that uh, most food science departments can find jobs or help, or I should say the graduates of food science departments are able to find jobs and good jobs in industry or uh, government or, uh, or other academic positions. Maybe I'm just in it too much, but it does feel like people are interested in the food they eat more than ever, and therefore yeah, there is more knowledge and um, at least um, more awareness about this profession and the, and the science, but maybe I'm just too in it. I don't know. I think the Internet has certainly increased enhanced awareness of foods, and people are very interested in knowing more about the food supply and the food that, foods that they eat. There's no doubt about that. Unfortunately, of course, there's a great deal of misinformation on the Internet about foods, um, and and that makes it a little difficult. That's why we need well-trained food scientists who understand the science and uh, can help 
maybe help people understand whether that, you know, there are chemicals in foods that foods in themselves are chemicals mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they're, they're not necessarily um, uh, bad for you and that, in fact, uh, and, and that there are some issues related to naturally occurring toxicants in foods that people should be aware. I mean, there's so much misinformation mm-hmm. on the Internet. It really makes our job that much more difficult as a food right. scientist. Right, right. That's very true, sadly, but hopefully that'll that'll change as as the information and the education occurs. You know, a lot of these um graduates you mentioned placement. I've heard ninety percent or more job placement out of food science departments. Um Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was chairman of the nutrition and food science department at University of Maryland uh, for a few years, uh, we never had a problem placing our food science graduates into good jobs. Um, and it's really quite amazing to me that uh, it's not that there aren't more students in food science. Uh, but I guess, you know, it, we continue to have this awareness issue um, of of the food science as an academic mm-hmm. discipline. I, there are a lot of people interested in foods, but they don't necessarily understand that there is a, a field of study related to the science right. of food production. Right. And it brings it all together, all the different basic sciences into an an applied science. So we have a big problem in industry placing quality assurance managers. There's a lot of companies that can't find really um, well-educated, you know, with bachelor's or master's degrees in food science, meat science, animal science. It's hard to find a good quality. Are you having that issue? Do you know for consumer safety officers or or entry-level type? positions within the agency or in field operations? I think not necessarily with well let me let me start over here, uh, Peter. Mm-hmm. In in relation to the having good professional hires from uh, the food science area or animal science area for consumer safety officers. I think we do fairly well, but part of our problem with government is that we don't pay as well as industry. Industry definitely pays more than we do, and that makes it even a little more difficult for us to compete. So we do end up oftentimes hiring people out of, say, a uh, traditional microbiology uh, with a traditional microbiology or chemistry background and uh, work with them over the years to ensure that they become more uh, knowledgeable about uh, foods and food safety. That's mm-hmm. essentially what we have to do. Okay. Now, we right. do, I should say we do have some really excellent food scientists that that we've hired over the years. Many of them younger food scientists, and we're always very interested. I would encourage any of your listeners who are students to think about government as a career choice. It is not something I had initially thought of uh, when I was getting involved in food science. And uh, but but there are some really great opportunities for long-term careers in uh, science, uh, in food science, in the government agencies. Both, you know, CDC, FSIS, here at FDA. There are some really good areas where people can make contributions to uh, the overall food policy issues uh, and the science needs that we have for our overall food policy issues. Yes. Okay. Well, that's that's great. I think that it's good advice uh, for these young professionals and, and new graduates or soon-to-be graduates. Hopefully, that will be well heeded. So, I think we're at the end of our time. Any final thoughts you wanted to share, Mickey? 
Well, Peter, I just really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to sort of uh, try to answer a few questions. Uh, speaking off the cuff is not always my strong point, but it, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you, you guys are doing a great job out there in uh, getting more information out to the public, and we appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Oh, well, thanks. And likewise, uh, is there any way uh, you would like people to contact you or get in touch or find out more about what you're doing? Uh, sure. Yeah, I can be contacted. Uh, if you go to the FDA website, there's a sort of a staff directory uh, widget there that you can use to find me, uh, or you can just type my name. It's Mickey.Parish, and that's with one R, at FDA.HHS.GOV. So feel free to send me an email. I'm happy to respond. Uh, if I don't respond in the, within a, a few days, send me another email. Uh, as you know, I, we're deluged with emails here, but I'll do my best to try to uh, keep up as best I can. I can imagine you get quite a few. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Mickey. I appreciate your time and great speaking with you as always. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, Take Peter. Care. You too. Good talking to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.